Hey! Welcome to Bruise Culture. I'm your host, Evan Schwab. I own the gaming site Big Cultures, and I'm an aspiring Cicero. I'm here to help you pair quality craft beers with great games in order to maximize your leisure time. We'll talk about some of the best breweries and their histories alongside the ins and outs of games and the gaming industry. So stop in, take a load off, and enjoy excellent brews with us as we explore two of the most profitable business industries. Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of Brews Culture. Today I think we got a we've got an interesting one. It's a relatively small brewery. It does have distribution in I believe five separate states and it it seems to be moving further west. So I think we'll be hearing more from this brewery as they continue to grow, but small brewery but a big franchise as far as the video games go but one that's been rebooted and one that probably was almost lost to, you know, the annals of time. But I think we got a good one today. I think we got a fun one today. Definitely a beer that's enjoyable. Definitely a game that is controversial. <laughs> but we'll get all of we'll get to all of that here in a second. Crazy enough, recent analysis just uh, was dropped by PwC suggesting that the video gaming industry will reach about $321 billion, uh, worth of $321 billion by 2026, which is only four years away. You could, you, you could have asked me, you know, two years ago, I guess probably a little more than two years ago at this point, whether I thought gaming was going to peak soon, and I probably would have said yes. <laughs> you know, the, the video game industry was... One of the largest entertainment industries in existence. And, you know, it, it just seemed to be at a peak. And then COVID came. COVID shut everything down. COVID really set the video game market on fire. People suddenly had nowhere to go. And so, and they had nothing to do. And they couldn't see people, especially during that three-week, like, super lockdown period. So they... They turned to video games. Many of them did. I, I suppose not all of them did. But many people turned to, to video games during the pandemic. And the result was a huge boom in the video game sector. Especially especially for resellers. You know, I, I started BitCultures as a uh, retail resale company at the beginning of this year got the license for it rather at the beginning of this year. And I mean, it's, it really is a, a pretty wild, especially in, you know, the latter half of 2020, all of 2021 and, and the, the beginning of 2022, the market was insane. I mean, games were going for just enormous percentages over what they would typically go for. So it was just it was just a crazy, crazy result of the pandemic and the lockdowns. But in 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 you know in that situation, that scenario, you know the projections for the industry have I think expanded a bit as far as this uh, this particular analysis goes, and uh, and and that makes sense because maybe there were a few long lost gamers in there who rekindled a passion for gaming when. Uh, 
you know, and backed up against the wall. The other piece here that I, I briefly want to talk about, I can't find the exact quote, but, you know, so somebody with a lot of media attention, or at least a lot of Twitter attention, rather, had suggested that long form gaming is like a sign of depression. And their their reasoning, however, it seemed flawed to me. And it was think about the, the they ask, think about the top 100 moments, memories of your life that you, you know, have stored in your memory that you love that that when you reflect on them, make you happy. How many of those are are gaming related? This person's answer was probably none, but. Even if that were the case, I don't I don't I don't know if I agree with that sentiment in particular. I enjoy gaming. And when I was younger, I really enjoyed long form gaming. You know, I could play games all day. I can certainly tell you I I don't think I was depressed. I was pretty happy all around. <laughs> I had lots of friends and, you know, I just really enjoy games. And so my point is like I also really enjoyed reading, and I still do. And I could lose myself in a book for hours at a time. Does that mean that that's another form of depression? Right? Because at, at, and I suppose one could argue that I'm utilizing, you know, argumentative fallacies here, but, and that, that is, that is the case. But the initial, <laughs> the initial argument is pretty devoid of any, uh, purposeful correlation. So, yeah, I, I would love to know your thoughts on it. But while I was looking for the quote, there there apparently was a study done that suggested that there was, in fact, a link between heavy gaming and, and depression or social anxiety or loneliness and all those things, which, you know, I don't know. It's really hard to say. It, it really is because perhaps like 20 years ago when... Gaming was frowned upon when, uh, you know, you got bullied for being a nerd, all those things. It makes sense then. Today, today, I don't know, like everybody games, right? I mean, I know not everybody games, but the average age of a gamer is like 35 years old. That's older than I am, <laughs> you know? So if the average gamer is 35 probably suggests that a ton of people game uh, unless not as many kids game but having taught for 10 years I can say that my anecdotal experience suggests otherwise so it's just a really interesting thought uh, and I would love to hear anybody's thoughts on that you know does anybody I mean I know gaming is an escape from reality you hear that often and then I that certainly could suggest a link to depression perhaps, or, or perhaps someone with tendencies uh, of that nature. But I think overall, I think it's a bit of a stretch. I do. <laughs> I do. I game. I still game. I'm married with two children. I love my wife. I love my kids. Like, you know, my children bring me more happiness than I knew could, you know, that I knew existed. But I still love to game. <laughs> I will still carve out a section of the night you know, nine out of 10 times to, to give myself a little bit of time to game. I don't know. I always, I always, for me, it was always like a comparative 
to reading a novel. You know, I've always been a fan of RPGs, which is, oh, there's a lot of text and, and essentially felt like you were reading a novel, especially with the older, you know, RPGs that I grew up with. So I don't know, maybe, maybe because I look at, you know, and, and I've also made the argument in essays and, and probably have brought it up here, but you know, I think video games are, are a form of art and maybe not like, you know, maybe not the, the multiplayer of Call of Duty, but I think there's a very strong argument. If, if books are art, if fiction is art, then so too should video games. Proper ones. You know, there's a vetting. I, not all poetry is art. You might argue. You know, there might be some smutty books that you think are just tasteless. I don't, I don't know. You know, you, maybe you don't like Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> it's an interesting conversation, one that I really enjoy having. I had a really great professor when I was in college for, for teaching. And it was like one of the, the leaders of, you know, the intellectual world on multimodal literacies. I actually just recently published a book. His name is uh, Dr. William Kist, K-I-S-T. Really fascinating stuff. But multimodal literatures are basically, uh, and by literatures, I mean literacies. Well, basically what, what Dr. Kist argued is that in our modern world, in our, our world that you know is so technological, where so many students consume media on various applications, various settings that we as teachers need to accommodate this shift in, um, I guess, I, I suppose you could say like a, a societal shift where we're not really preparing students right now to enter the world being literate in these new literacies. And, and essentially what that means is all of the literature, the news stories, the uh, tweets, you know, the social media, video games, all of these different platforms where they will be consuming information, consuming, you know, media, whatever, that we're not preparing them to tackle that. And, and you know, curriculum curriculum now spends a lot of time on fiction and nonfiction in Ohio. It got a little bit, uh, a little bit, I don't know what the proper term I'm looking for. It used to be very specific and now it's much more general, which is, which is probably for the better because it allows teachers the freedom to choose types of materials they're going to teach. You know, I, I, the last, the last classroom I taught was um, some seventh grade English. And uh, one of my favorite short stories is The Yellow Wallpaper. It's a commentary on... It's it's a feminist piece. And then a commentary when it was written, which was, you know, many years ago. Uh, it was a commentary on the psychological and social damages of this particular character and, and the way the men, men in her life treated her. But it's a really cool, really cool... So if you if you take that piece out, right, which is an important piece, and we talk about that, we talked about that in the class. But if you take that piece out and you just read it on the surface level, it's actually a really cool psychological thriller type of horror story, which 
I, I really enjoy, you know, on, on the multiple levels. And, and there's a lot of great conversation pieces to be had there. And so, so I, I enjoy, I enjoyed the curriculum that allowed me to the freedom to, uh, you know, use those pieces, but these, these new literacies, you know, say, say we were doing nonfiction and I don't know, maybe a research project or, or, or some sort of material, some sort of presentation that involved research. You know, we're probably preparing students to use encyclopedias to go to a library and, and find good resources at a library. You know, most schools have a suite of digital reference materials that students can use. But the idea of these new literacies argues that that's good. That, that is important stuff. Nobody is teaching students how to interact with and discern information from these new literacies. So the last few years has been there's been a lot of conversation about quote fake news unquote and what is fake news and what's not fake news. How can you tell if somebody is deceiving you? We're not teaching these types of, of things to students, you know. They might get an article that looks like it's totally legit, but on deeper examination, maybe very clearly not. Or there may be an article from a legit source that has errors in it. So, you know, or you or they see something on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook or or what have you, and they don't maybe don't understand how to parse through some of that information or whether some of that information would be even appropriate to use in a research project. And that's just, that's just a super basic level. And I apologize if I'm boring everybody and getting off topic, but in the new literacies, and this was argued to me by my professor when I was in college back in, you know, the early, so I graduated in 2010 from Kent state university. And back then he was, Dr. Kist was convinced that video gaming was important and would continue to be important. So it was really cool to see then. And, and, and I think it's really cool that he's continuing this, this research and just published a new book on the new literacies, multimodal literacies. But yeah, so that's my, uh, that's my random tangent at this point. I don't even remember how we got there, but <laughs> with that said, we got a couple of a couple of cool items here today. So our beer for the day is a beer called Garage Beer. It's a premium lager. It's from Braxton Brewing Company, which is based out of Covington, Kentucky. They do also have a tap room in Cincinnati. They distribute, as I said, I believe in in seven uh or I'm sorry, five states right now. They were expanding. In 2018, I think they expanded to uh, either Cincinnati or Columbus. I know they have a tap room in Cincinnati, but perhaps we're expanding distribution to the Columbus, maybe uh, Michigan area too. They recently, within the last year, started pushing west and just opened distribution into Texas. And that was their first major move since the pandemic, since things started opening up, you know, after the beginning of the pandemic. So I think... I think they have some pretty interesting stuff and I think you know if you if you live on the west coast I think I think as time goes by you'll you'll start to see some 
in the, you know, maybe the next few months. <laughs> I mean, maybe the next few years, rather, probably not the next few months. However, I did get this case of beer from Costco. <laughs> so perhaps check your Costco. I don't know if, if Costco has a wide distribution or if it's just, you know, because we're in the area. But we, I did get this uh, this case from Costco. It, it continuously caught my eye every time I would go in because the Braxton Brewing Company logo is pretty cool. You know, the, the art, it's very minimal, <laughs> very minimalistic. And I like a good lager every once in a while, you know, especially on a hot summer day and a nice lager is just a perfect perfect cold beer cold drink to have on a hot day but finally ended up purchasing this this case my daughter turned four at the beginning of this month we had a party at our house so gotta have beers <laughs> so i used that opportunity to grab some of this and i was i was very pleasantly surprised and so were the guests who uh who consumed so garage beer read this it says there's a very brief blurb here and it says at the intersection of hard work and innovation you'll find a garage full of ideas and a few cold ones to inspire what's next which you know cool sentiment <laughs> the alcohol content is about four percent i think that's four yeah four percent it is a very blonde you know Beer has a very nice creamy head. It doesn't really remind me of much. It's, it's it's relatively unique. I mean, it's definitely enjoyable. Currently sits at an 85% on Beer Advocate, which is pretty solid. You know, I feel like lagers often get a very bad rap, especially from, you know, the beer elite, which it's their prerogative, of course. But an 85 is uh, a very good score for Beer Advocate. You've got notes of bread, citrus on the taste. Mouthfeel is very, very crisp. And as I had already said, it is a perfect hot summer beer. Yeah, you know, I don't know. It's, it talks about you finding a garage full of... Oh, at the intersection of hard work and innovation. The beer is it's probably pretty unique. You know, Beer Advocate has it listed as a light lager. It calls itself a premium lager. It doesn't really taste like any sort of light beer to me. You know, it's not like a Miller Lite, not like a Coors Light or anything like that. Not that there's anything wrong with that if you, you know, if that's your thing. I worked with a lady who swore by Miller Lite. Totally fine. Totally fine. But it it definitely separates itself from the from the light beer category, in my opinion. You know, everybody has their own opinion, entitled to their own opinion as well. So, if you've had this before, I'd love to know what you think. Yeah, I mean, I think I got a. I, it's a it's a very good batch that I got, which is which is nice because I'm not sure many people buy it at this Costco. <laughs> their awkward cases are like 36 cans, I think. In any case, very, very good. No complaints. Uh, it's not going to knock your socks off, but it it's it's a great beer to unwind to at the end of the night or if you're sitting outside and it's super hot, it's super crushable. So, yeah, I would recommend it. I uh, I actually really enjoy it. Like I said, I enjoy a, a lager, you know, especially if, if I've had, you know, maybe I have an IPA for dinner or something. Nothing better than if I if I 
want to have another beer like before the end of the night because typically we'll have dinner at like five and I'll stay up till two or three in the morning. So I may have one more beer in the course of the day. It makes that perfect little companion beer, I suppose, if that's the right word for it. And so on that note, you know, something that's not crazy. There, There is some innovation here, even though it's a reboot. <laughs> Our game for today is uh, the Saints Row reboot, which released just, uh, I think, about two months ago. The Saints Row reboot <laughs> sees you as a uh, a poor person. You get to you get pretty much free reign of character creation. And when I say free reign, I mean like they let you customize your character down to the nipple size. So there is that. If you know anything about the Saints Row saga, which has been around since the PS2 era. Then you'll know that the games have always been sort of a uh, satire on the genre itself, the open world Grand Theft Auto type of genre. So they're they you know they they've always been humorous. They've always been pretty biting, I would say, as far as as commentary goes. Saints Row Reboot is is actually very similar. There have been a lot of review bombs for this game. It is super glitchy. And and let me rephrase that. Sometimes I think some of the glitches are intentional. But it does seem super buggy. I think that's where the the most amount of complaints probably come from. You know they're they're pretty it's a they're pretty progressive with their characters so that might offend some people but I I, I don't know I don't I didn't really notice myself <laughs> pretty much everything in the game is done for comedic value so I feel like if you're getting super upset then you should probably reevaluate some things but but yeah it, it definitely feels glitchy because you could be riding a motorcycle crash into the side of a semi-truck, flip into the air, do three, like, 360 spins, and land on, I don't know, another car, and that other car would possibly explode because you damaged it a little bit too much, or you're getting chased by the police or some some gang, and you sideswipe them with your motorcycle, and you, I don't know. You know, it's just a silly experience, but Certainly a lot of fun. And Saints Row has always struck me as innovative. You know, they they typically have some pretty wild weaponry. Their stories are usually over-the-top silly. Their characters are always over-the-top silly. And the characters in this one are are they're pretty enjoyable. I think they were um pretty well written. They each had their their own humorous pieces to themselves and and I think they all play very well together. The created character that you get to play as has some very solid voice actors to play. You've always been able to choose your voice actor in Saints Row. In this case, I took Max Middleman. He's from I think you probably know him from Persona 5. But the game itself is um an open world very similar to Grand Theft Auto. But you you're a very poor you and your friends live in an apartment and in order to pay the rent for the month, you, you start the game off by robbing a bank. So you, you know, those kind of shenanigans ensue and perhaps, perhaps people were disappointed 
by the somewhat based, maybe cast, and plot in this one. Saints Row 4 was absolutely bonkers off the wall crazy. Like, like it's, imp- I mean, if you haven't played it, I do recommend it. But but essentially you're in you're in a digital world that's being controlled by like crazy aliens. So Saints Row reboot is much more grounded in reality. But the weaponry is fun. The driving's not bad. The music selection's pretty solid. Characters are interesting, and the story itself is pretty good too. It's a relatively short game, even for a platinum. You're probably looking at fifty to seventy hours for the platinum. So not too bad, and perhaps you breeze through things quickly but uh but yeah it's it's a very solid reboot i enjoyed it i know some people enjoy it <laughs> i've spoken to a few people spoken to some some members of my team who also enjoyed it but i recommend both you know neither are going to blow your socks off neither are going to like absolutely melt your mind but if you're looking for a good time looking for a game that you can easily sit down and play for 15 20 minutes you're looking for a beer that you can relax to at the end of a night maybe put them together and play saints row and have the garage beer you know i don't know you could do much worse on both both accounts remember mind jack exists and uh, is out there perhaps one day i'll find a beer that i absolutely hate and i will pair it with mind jack <laughs> but on that note everybody thank you so much for hanging out and, and listening to me talk about my beers, my games, and uh, and in this episode, my uh, passion for teaching, my passion for education and multimodal literacies. So uh, have a great night, and we'll catch you again next week. Thank you so much. As always, please drink responsibly and have yourselves a wonderful, wonderful evening, morning, day, afternoon. Thank you. Disclaimer. This podcast is produced for your universal listening pleasure. Any statements shared during our program are opinions and experiences of our team and guests. If you disagree with any content presented herein, please find another show before submitting nasty grams. This is a positive vibes only platform. If you love our show and want to connect, share your experiences, or know someone who we should interview on future episodes, please don't hesitate to get in touch through our website or Instagram. Thanks for listening to this program brought to you by Daydreamer Network. If you enjoyed the episode, please don't forget to rate and review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred platform. Your feedback allows us to rank on the best new shows list and continue to grow our podcasts in order to bring more unique and talented storytellers to the network. To check out our shows, including programs about relationships, sports, business, nutrition, leisure, and more, head to www.daydreamernetwork.com. We look forward to seeing you back next week for another great episode. Have a wonderful day.